last week or weren't able to tune in. Or on behalf of our visitors today, we are in the second part of a six-part series entitled The Peace uh, That Passes Understanding. Last week we were in the middle part of Ephesians 2, and today uh, we are looking at uh, Colossians 1. Both of those passages are very jam-packed and full of all kinds of, of theology. Uh, last week we talked about peace with God, and today we're talking about peace by Jesus Christ. Um, the text is printed for you on your bulletin. It is a short reading, so I think we'll use this as a unison reading together. Let us read the Word of God. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, And in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Because this is such a famous passage of Scripture, over the years I've preached on this passage uh, more than once. In fact, just five years ago, it was part of a series entitled Living Thankfully in the Supremacy of Christ. And on that particular occasion, we took more of a look at the first part of this text where we find out that Jesus is the Lord of the universe. Uh, But notice that the second half of our passage has to do with the church. We can see how it sort of changes gears there as it begins to talk about how Jesus is the head of the church. He's Lord of the church, and that's the section of this passage we're dealing with today. In other words, all of these lofty phrases in the first part of this uh, text are not just abstract thinking by Paul. He has a purpose with these words, and we can see how this latter part of our passage brings this wonderfully preeminent cosmic Christ down out of the universe, right down to the flesh and blood of earth where His blood This cosmic Christ left His rightful place with God the Father and took on the form of flesh and has written salvation history through His life story on this earth. A salvation from which we benefit even as He is Lord of His church even today. And I must confess that as we get into this sermon today, you're probably, if you heard last week's sermon, are going to think, that sounds a lot like what he said last week. Is he just giving us lost over? You know, warmed up a little bit? Well, uh, 
that old Herman Hermit tune back in the 60s. I'm Henry VIII, I am king. Now, how would it remind you of such a ridiculous song? Well, you know, at the end of the first verse, what do they sing? Second verse, same as the first. How that ever made it to a number one song in America, I'll never know. And if you're young enough that you're wondering, what in the world is he talking about? You haven't missed anything if you've never heard that song. Well, today it's not second verse, same as the first, but we will see a lot of same words here in Colossians 1 that we saw in Ephesians 2, especially words like uh, uh, cross and blood and peace and the whole concept of reconciliation. But in the context of last week's passage, uh, this peace with God, uh, which made reconciliation with God possible, uh, was, yes, not just with God, though. We found out that, yes, there's a vertical reconciliation going on that God has made possible through Jesus' work on the cross, but there's also a horizontal reconciliation where we're reconciled with one another. And, And Paul's particular emphasis in Ephesians 2 last week was this piece that had to do with the creation of a new humanity where Jews and Gentiles were combined together to form one new humanity because the dividing wall of hostility had been broken down by Jesus' work on the cross. And that's great. But in today's passage, we see something a little grander in scale than being reconciled to God and to one another as if that isn't enough. Today we see reconciliation of all things, whether on earth or in heaven because of the peace that Jesus manufactures by the blood of His cross. And this latter section of our text, talking about how Jesus is Lord of the church, begins in verse 18. Well, we read a moment ago that Jesus is the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that in everything He might be preeminent. And we can see that His lordship over His church is expressed in the three titles this verse holds. The head, the beginning, and firstborn. This description of Jesus as the head of the church should be self-evident to us. Paul, you know, uses the metaphor of a body a lot to talk about the church in lots of his other letters. And, and we understand how important the head is when we look at our own life. The head is where life is found. Without the head, you don't have life. You know, uh, Lord forbid you cut your hand off. You can still live. Or if your leg's amputated, you can still live. Take a kidney, you can still live, but not the head. You have to have the head for life. And not only that, but just think about all the direction and guidance that we have from our brains through these wonderful eyes and ears and nose and so on and so forth that God has given us. Then this term beginning means that Jesus initiated the church. His coming made all the difference in the world, just as the coming of His Holy Spirit made such a difference. We can read about that in Acts 2, 
where these disciples are spared and, and all gathered together in that upper room. And when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, all of a sudden, they're out in Jerusalem proclaiming the good news of the gospel. And Jesus makes that difference today in the church by the power of His Holy Spirit, just as He does in our own individual lives. And then we can also see that He's the firstborn, which of course does not speak to His being created. We know that Jesus has always been. He's eternal, just like the Father, just like the Holy Spirit. John tells us at the beginning of his Gospel, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This term firstborn speaks to His preeminence. Just like we see in the Old Testament where the firstborn son had everything going for him. He had it all. He had the blessing from the Father. He had so much going on. And that's what Paul's referring to here. Uh, his rank and honor as the only son of the living God. But that's not all. It also speaks to the fact that Jesus entered the realm of the dead through His death on the cross and He defeated death and the grave through the resurrection. Paul speaks to this in 1 Corinthians 15 when he writes that Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You see, the, the resurrection acts as an exclamation point on the preeminence Jesus already had. He is risen, as He said, and in that resurrection glory, He is above all things. And Paul speaks to this preeminence in Philippians 2 and perhaps words that are more familiar to us when he says that God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This is the Jesus through whom all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And this is the Jesus through whom reconciliation takes place. And as we just barely mentioned last week, this concept of reconciliation speaks to a relationship that has been broken. It's a relationship that's messed up. It's a relationship that needs help. Our relationship with God has been destroyed by sin. That's why we need reconciliation. And we can see such a, a moving description of how badly this relationship with God has been hurt right there in Genesis 3 as Adam and Eve literally try to hide from God. You know, they've had a face-to-face -face relationship with their Creator. And when they sinned, when they committed disobedience, all of that is wiped out. And they're hiding. Well, our relationship with the one who made us is broken because of the sin in our lives. Now, as I just barely hinted last week, this, this word reconciliation was used a lot in Paul's day and time to talk about the marital relationship. In other words, Paul is bringing that term right out of uh, what we might say family counseling. 
in some way or another. You know, that's that's the word he chooses to use here. And it was it was talked about especially when a couple was having trouble and they had separated from one another. And if they managed to work through their problems and put one another first, they were able to come back together. And that's what that term reconciliation is used for. It shows that uh, it involved a tremendous change in a person's attitude toward another and their relationship with another. And as last week's passage told us, so does this text today proclaim that Jesus makes this reconciliation with God possible through His blood on the cross. And we can see that in verses 19 and 20. For we read, For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. Now keep in mind that this reconciliation speaks to a change in you and me. You know, it's not like God has walked away from us. We've walked away from God because of our sins. We've put that barrier up between ourselves and God. And so it's always in Scripture that we need to be reconciled back to God. We no longer walk in our old ways. We're no longer, to use the terms in last week's text, we're no longer separated. We're no longer aliens. We're no longer strangers. We're no longer live for evil. Rather, we're changed forevermore, which means we're set apart for God's work. That's why those of us in the church are called saints. That's what holy ones mean. It means people that are set apart. But again, notice how this change comes. It's by the blood of Jesus' cross. This one phrase describes God's so love so well because it brings, once again, this cosmic Christ who's preeminent and above all brings Him right down to earth where He shed His blood on the cross for your sins and for my sins. And that word blood refers to the work of In other words, not only is the lamb worthy to be slain, but the lamb had to be slain for your sins and for mine to pay that price. As Hebrews 9 reminds us, without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. But as it is, Christ has appeared once for all at the end of the age to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Let's come back to this clause at the end of our text of which we've just been speaking where Paul tells us he was making peace by the blood of his cross. Uh, This clause uh, is the key, perhaps, to understanding that earlier phrase about God reconciling to himself all things. Uh, Once again, we have the Old Testament shining through, providing a foundation for what Paul is trying to communicate in this text. His thought process is picking up on the widespread Old Testament prediction that in the last times, God would bring His era of shalom back to all of creation. That He would bring peace everywhere. 
many of the prophets emphasize what this would be like, this peace, this time of peace for Israel as God's people, but they also make reference to the fact that the wider creation suffers from the effects of humanity's sin. And thus all of creation is in need of reconciliation. And we see that in very prominent passages as you think about Isaiah 11, for example, where we're told the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. What does the wolf do today? If it sees a lamb, it's going to kill it. is trying to get you and me to see a word picture that will tell us what this reign of peace will be like. And it's going to be so dramatic that the wolf and the lamb will lie down together. Or over in Isaiah 55 we read, For you shall go out in joy and be led forth in peace, and the mountains and the hills shall break forth into singing before you. Think about what mountains do today. Had an earthquake not long ago. They rumble. Not only that, mountains are volcanoes. And volcanoes in this world spew out lava and ash thousands and thousands of feet into the air. That's what the mountains do in our day and time in a sinful and fallen world. says, the mountains and the hills before you shall break forth into singing. And he goes on to say, in one of my favorite verses of Scripture, and all the trees of the field will be blessed. They'll clap their hands. That's the coming that's coming. Instead of the thorn, he says, shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar, shall come up the myrtle. You know, God told Adam in Genesis 3, because of the effects of sin, you're going to have thorns and thistles. They're going to be weeds and everything. It's going to be hard for you to get ahead. But you'll have no more in that reign of peace. The Apostle Paul has this sort of teaching in mind in Romans 8 and gives us a brief primer on it when he tells us that the creation was subjected to futility. He says the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the glorious liberty of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together until birth until now. I'm sure you can see how these verses... And this picture that I've just described for you takes care of reconciling all things on earth. In other words, it's not just people, but it's all of the natural world as well. But what about reconciling all things in heaven? That's what Paul also says in Isaiah. What in heaven needs reconciling? Paul's talking about the spirit world. And he has in mind a great cosmic battle that took place at the cross of Jesus Christ. And, and through the cross and his subsequent resurrection, God has won the war. There are still battles to come, but the war has already been won. And Paul talks about this in a clearer way, a chapter over in Colossians 2.15 
when he says he, meaning God, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Jesus Christ. You know, Paul was envisioning a Roman time, Dr. Age, when the army had had such a wonderful victory that they marched their enemies into the city of Rome in front of the Roman people. And Paul saying, this is what God the Father has done through His Son, Jesus Christ. He's triumphed over all the authorities and the powers of the spirit world. As one commentator put it, Paul's intent on rebutting any idea that part of the universe, life is small, is outside the scope of Christ reconciling men. And especially he stresses that there's no alien power or hostile spirit force which can work havoc against the church of Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus is telling us Himself when He says, I will build My church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Those spirit, spirits, wherever they're found, those powers, those authorities, they cannot hold forth against the church of Jesus Christ and His power. If you want this biblical truth in more familiar terms, simply go once again to Romans 8 where Paul tells us, I'm sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. By this gracious work of Jesus Christ on the cross, God has created peace, And He has brought His entire rebellious creation back under the rule of His sovereign power. Is this peace perfect? Yes. No, it is not. It's just like Jesus' kingdom. It's already real, but it's not fully realized yet and won't be until Jesus returns to this earth. And yet we see in His work the fulfillment of His words and tears. When he said, My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives, do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. We may still live in a dangerous and hostile world, a world full of violence and terrorism, a world full of illness. A world where the next day at any time could have some other disease, some other hurricane, some other tornado, some other whatever it happens to be. That we get so comfortable. But here's the point of everything I've said today. And I appreciate you listening through this lecture because it's more like a lecture than a sermon. Because there's just too much theology. But this is the point of everything I've said. We can continue to live in this hostile and dangerous world with all of its change and with all of its unknowns. We can live in it in peace and with peace. Because 
your blood of Jesus Christ in the church. My peace is this. I give peace. Not as the world.